0: This is an ABC podcast. Huh.
1: When I turned it over, I huh. I think I was shocked, first of all, because sticking out of some dirt on the obverse side were two little fan-shaped ridges. And something in the back of my head said tooth and then something in the back of my head said teeth. And then something else said if these are teeth, then this is jawbone. Opalized jawbone with teeth uh, are as rare as rocking horse shit. They're just... You don't find them. Yeah,
0: nah. Yeah, nah. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. That there, that's Mike Pobin. Mike is an opal dealer. And a few years ago... He stumbled across something that would change his life and what we understand about the history of the Australian continent. (music) Mike Pobin is a passionate man. He knows what he likes, and on those things, he goes deep. His love of opals began when he was 16... Driving back home to Adelaide after a trip to Uluru, he gets stuck in Cooper Pedy due to floodwaters.
1: What do you do when you're in Cooper Pedy and you're waiting for the roads? You go out and sit on the dumps and look for rocks. And I remember the first piece I found was rounded and I blew the dust off and I licked it, which you do, you lick it to... It sounds disgusting, doesn't it? Yeah. And the sun hits it and it was a piece of opalized mussel shell. The very first piece of opal I ever found, and with colour, with gem colour. Oh, I want to say I wasn't hooked, but looking back, I absolutely was, absolutely was.
0: There are different kinds of opals. You get the conventional gemstones, the stuff you see in shop windows, polished into those glowing orbs of colour, But then there are also opalised fossils. These form when silica, which is essentially molten glass, fills in the gaps that are left by bits of bone or shell deep underground. Under certain conditions in some places in the world, those gaps work like a cake mould. The silica seeps in, takes on its shape, and the result is part opal, part fossil. A shell or a bone, but made of opal. Now, Mike, he loves opal in all of its forms. And from that first discovery, he dips in and out of the Opal trade in the decades that follow. He even mines Opal for a while, before becoming a full-time Opal dealer, buying and selling. Over the years, his fortunes go up and down with the market. And in 2013, after he'd had a few years out of the game, Mike started making regular trips back to Lightning Ridge. It's a dry, dusty town in northwestern New South Wales, one of the few places in the world where you can find highly prized, black
1: opal. I I put my sign outside the motel in the street and uh, just about every buyer does. You put the shingle out, it's like an A-frame sign or something like that and uh, advertise the fact that you're in town buying.
0: And it works. Miners driving in from surrounding fields start bringing in their latest finds. They're usually stored in ice cream containers, old jars, Ziploc bags. And on one of these visits, Mike answers the door to a pair of miners – They show him some rough opal, he buys a few bags and after they leave, he sits down, puts on his headband with the magnifying lenses attached and takes a look at what he's just bought.
1: I had a really good look at one of them and I thought, oh, Michael, why did you buy this? And there was nothing there that really interested me. So I gave it to a guy in the ridge to on-sell. I didn't want it.
0: Then he turns to the second bag and that's when he realises that he's hit the geeky fossil jackpot.
1: Uh, sitting here it's about as big as the middle joint of my middle finger it's small it's small yeah I was pretty sure that it was bone and after I saw the fan shaped ridges I was pretty sure that they were teeth and if they were teeth of course then it's jawbone and I'm uh, I'm I don't know a, a gog, you know' <laughs> I'm a, a I was sitting there in shock, you know, hair rising up on the back of my neck because it's just so rare. The largest tooth was just, just beautiful. This beautiful fan shape. I just looked at it and looked at it and looked at it, and uh, all the time thinking, this is, this is just amazing. A vein
0: of greeny blue opal running through the fossilised jawbone of a long-dead animal. The teenage fossil nerd in Mike is just besotted with this thing. But the opal dealer in Mike knows that opalized fossils are a niche interest. Conventional gemstones, that's what he can easily buy and sell. And that's what he's here to do. Which brings us back to that first bag of opal that Mike had bought in the same batch, the one that he didn't want and had tried to sell on through someone else. About a week later, it comes back to him.
1: The guy who had it on consignment said, Mike, I I can't sell this stuff. Nobody wants it. No one's interested. I didn't even get an offer on it. And I went, "Okay." And then, I don't know, I just had this curiosity in the back of my head going, you know, maybe you should have a really good look at this. And so I went through it and I found I've got the same uh, feeling again. Another little gunmetal grey piece which was shiny on one side, clearly a small piece of bone. Same thing, I turned it over and uh, I could see what looked like teeth sockets. And what tipped me off was um, on one side there was a little groove and I I went, where have I seen a little groove like that and a little stripe of green? And then I realised, of course, that the other larger piece that I'd found a week before had a groove in it and it had a stripe of green. So I dug it out of its secret hiding place and um, slowly brought the two pieces together. And, and you know, wow. Not one piece of, of opalized jawbone, but two pieces of opalized jawbone. You know, if it was a movie, it would be one of those golden sunbeam moments in the Blues Brothers, you know. An a choir of angels or something, you know, extravagant like that. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And I knew I had something special. I knew.
0: Not once, but twice, Mike has now made the fossil discovery of a lifetime. Two pieces of the same jawbone, richly coloured with veins of opal, brought up from deep underground, broken apart in the mining process, almost separated forever. And he's found them, brought them back together. Mike cherishes these two little fossil fragments and he adds them to the collection of his personal favourites.
1: Well, I can't tell you how many times I pulled those two pieces out of their hiding place and looked at them like at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, just thinking about it, just looking at it. I mean, <laughs> it kind of makes me a bit of a nerd, I think.
0: <laughs> Even today, the Opal business is pretty secretive. People keep their finds close and quiet. They're paranoid about giving too much away, Where they mind for something who they bought it off. So Mike shares his find with a few of his friends, but mostly he admires them in private. But after a few years, his curiosity does get the better of him. What was this thing? He decides to get a professional opinion, and through his networks comes a name. Dr Phil Bell, a paleontologist who specialises in the region around Lightning Ridge. A
2: paleontologist is anyone who studies fossils. Of course, most people... Associate a paleontologist with Ross from Friends, which is really unfortunate. <laughs> uh, well, at least they know what it is.
1: I, I liked him instantly. Phil is—he—he um, he would have thrived in the '60s. He's got you know, long hair and a beard, and he—and he walks around barefoot. I mean, wait,
0: a barefooted paleontologist?
1: Wouldn't that be a great title for a TV show? The, the barefooted, barefooted paleontologist. Paleontolo- yeah. I—I <laughs> I don't know how he walks around. Lightning Ridge barefoot but he does uh, there are bindies all over the place in the three corner jacks um, yeah, fabulous character
2: I'd been coming and going at Lightning Ridge for a few years around those parts you you never know what to expect you know, the, the most innocuous person in town or in the pub can have you know, half a million dollars of jewels in their pocket and uh, and you'd never know and Mike was one of those names that came up as an enthusiast of fossils. So I was very pleased to finally meet him and uh, see some of his treasures.
1: Phil had a colleague with him from Italy. Federico was coincidentally in town and um, they came to the room.
2: We met up in his hotel room. Um, brick walls, a little kitchenette, you know, toilet off to the side, um, and then two double beds. And in between was a little trestle table with a, a lamp shining down on, on some of Mike's opals. You know, blistering heat outside and you walk in to this dark room, air-conditioned, you know, with a single light <laughs> hanging over this fossil.
1: I softened him up with a few other pieces by showing him uh, beautifully coloured vertebrae and a few lovely, lovely bone pieces. Things that I'd seen before and, uh, you know, while well, they were very beautiful. They weren't, they weren't
2: game changers. And then he you know, kind of had a little twinkle in his eye and he finally brought out
1: his piece. I saved the best for last and they both went quiet. And when I opened it up, you know,
2: unwrapped the, the toilet paper and tissue paper that was protecting it. I, it's unmistakably opal. There was a beautiful flash of bluey pinks through the middle of this jawbone. With miners and, and opal buyers, it's often like playing poker and you know playing this game where I guess where you're gauging each other's attention on the piece. This was my first meeting with Mike and so I didn't know what kind of, you know, what kind of reaction he would have and if, if I got too excited whether I was going to jeopardize ever seeing that fossil again.
1: Phil did not say, this is fantastic, this is spectacular, wow, you know. He was very subdued, very professional. But I knew something was up because both of them looked at the two pieces for 45 minutes. They'd swap them and swap them back and swap them back. And uh, then Phil said, oh, can I take some photographs? I said, yeah, knock yourself out. And uh, he flattened the battery on his camera.
2: It was still kind of dirty. It still had a lot of rock... Uh, adhering to the surface of it. And you know, I saw not only the beautiful colour in these two pieces of bone, but also the teeth. And it's obvious, we were looking at the, the jawbone of a, a dinosaur.
0: The jawbone of a dinosaur. This is what Phil now has in front of him. Two pieces, in fact. They've turned to opal, survived the mining process and now they're sitting in the palm of his hand. This is a delicate situation. As a scientist, if he wants to keep unravelling this mystery, he first has to convince Mike to donate these fragments to a public institution. And that worries him, because he's been here before.
2: You can get too excited about something and someone immediately recognises that as a dollar sign and can sell that, and that that piece is then lost, and might disappear overseas. This was something that was very important and we may not get another chance to see this again.
0: Mike could easily cash in at this point. He could use the money. Through whispers in the Opal world, he'd been made an offer of $20,000 from a reputable dealer. And that was before two scientists paid a visit to his hotel room and told him it's a dinosaur. If he was looking for the highest bidder, he'd likely find them overseas, at which point they'd disappear into a private collection, never to be seen again. But Phil's about to realise just how much of a fossil geek Mike really
1: is. There's a little group in the geekdom of (laughs) opalised fossils and um, they were like um, soulmates. Their passion for opalised fossil was obvious. And they said, we're hoping that you'll donate it to the museum. And um, I knew straight away that it would be the right thing to do, show Phil ask him what he thinks it is and um, and donate it to the museum, which I did.
0: That museum is the Australian Opal Centre in Lightning Ridge. Mike feels strongly that these fossils need to stay where they're found. It's at this point that Phil takes over the mystery. What do these bone bits belong to? And how on earth do you figure that out when all you have to go on are these two tiny fragments of very old, opalized bone? It turns out, it's all in the teeth.
2: You know, once I had a specimen, we take our measurements and photographs.
0: Phil sketches the teeth, memorises their shapes and their size, and then he starts scouring museums around the world to see if he can find a match.
2: So I spent some time in Argentina, you know, going through their collections, looking at the fossils, then coming back home and comparing them to, to Mike's jaw.
0: Months pass, then two years, and then, finally...
1: Look, I'm sitting here in your studio and I've got the same shakes inside again in my eyes. To be honest, I feel overwhelmed now just just talking about it. I mean, it's a new species. They have proved, yeah, beyond scientific doubt that it's a new species. It's a previously undiscovered animal. It's a new Australian dinosaur. Mm.
2: These are animals that were herbivores, little plant eaters, Um, probably between a a metre and and two metres in length.
0: So, Mike, how do you think about this creature in your own mind?
1: I used to... (laughs) God, this is weird. Talk about geek. (laughs) I used to sit in my room and imagine my little creature walking outside the room, pecking at branches and at the grass, and I wondered what it looked like, and I wondered what the colourings were like, and I wondered what it ate and how it walked. Um, I wonder, yeah, how it died. Got
2: around on on two legs. They had small, almost horse-like skulls. They probably would have made good pets. They're nice and small. They eat plants. Uh, They were probably quite friendly, I think. Uh, And they would have got around in, in herds, For protection. The front of the jaw at least in some of them had kind of a beak on them uh, particularly on the the lower jaw uh, whereas they had teeth further back
0: You know I told you on the phone that I think of them as a dog chicken (laughs) (laughs) How far off am I? (laughs) Uh,
2: It's it's, it's not a bad approximation (laughs) If a dog was walking around on on two legs probably lose the fur cover it in scales Um, yeah, that's, that's about what you're looking at.
0: Phil's research showed that this dinosaur had lived in Lightning Ridge around 100 million years ago. And it looked a whole lot different then.
2: Lightning Ridge was almost coastal real estate back then. The modern Gulf of Carpentaria is the last remnant of a great inland sea that once covered most of eastern Australia. So we had... Rivers that were flowing to the north, draining into that sea, Lightning Ridge was, was on those rivers, which would have been well-vegetated, you know, lovely, lush, dense forests. And the other important thing to know is that uh, Australia was much further south back then. Lightning Ridge was sitting at about 60 degrees south. So it was far more polar climate than it is today.
0: But one challenge remained. What do you name this creature?
2: And and Mike had suggested the name Weewarasaurus. And I thought, ah, that's brilliant, beautiful, really fitting, Um, had a a good Aussie twang to it.
0: Full scientific name? Weewarasaurus Pobini.
1: So, yeah, Weewarasaurus Pobini. I looked for the broader region, and the broader region was Weewarra, and I knew that Saurus, of course, was a lizard. And as the first time I said to myself in my head, we were a saurus, I thought, oh gee, that's got a nice ring to it and it kind of rolls off the tongue. Uh and the Pobini just comes from P O B E N with an I on the end, and the I is Latin for of.
0: Mike Poben, Pobini.
1: That's it. Of <laughs> of Pobin.
0: What does it feel like to have a dinosaur named after you?
1: I every time I see it written, I'm I'm yeah, my gob is smacked that. My surname is attached to the creature.
0: And Phil, I mean, just how rare are these two bone fragments?
1: If
2: you ask me, the the thing is priceless. It's the only one of its kind on the planet. You know, the the fact that Mike appreciates it so much that he doesn't want it on his mantelpiece like so many collectors do. You know, he sees the, the true value of it, which is to all Australians, it's to the entire world, really. So people can now go and see that jaw; They can see it on display at the Australian Opal Centre. It's there for everyone to appreciate and, and hopefully get a little bit of the thrill that Mike and I got in, in laying our eyes upon this thing for the first
0: time.
1: There are caves in Europe, the most famous probably in Lesso, of, of the animals that they used to hunt and the hunters themselves. And... Uh, there are hand impressions where the humans at the time took a mouthful of ochre and pff, sprayed their hands and left a handprint on the side of the wall. Those people were saying, this is me. I was here. I did this. And um, I don't want to make too much a big thing of this, but it feels to me like we were a source as the handprint on the cave of my life.
0: I mean... Come on, surely, that's got to count. That has, If, if anything counts, that's got to be up there.
1: It's, a, I don't know, I don't want to get... Uh, I do want to get philosophical. I mean, it's added meaning to my life in ways that I never thought it would. Yeah. Thanks to
0: Mike Pobin, Phil Bell and the Australian Opal Centre in Lightning Ridge. You can subscribe to Days Like These in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. If there's a story you want us to hear, please do get in touch with us. You can send an email or a voice memo. We are these at abc.net.au. Yeah, nah. Next time on Days Like These, it's every plane passenger's worst nightmare what really happens inside the cabin of British Airways Flight 9, where all four engines have failed and they're plunging towards the ocean.
2: Good evening again, ladies and gentlemen. It's Captain Eric Moody here. We have a small problem in that all four engines have failed. Boots are off, no socks. Took my passport out of my uh, briefcase and put it in my left pocket. I had a pocket knife. I put that in my other pocket because I just have this thing about sharks. You know, I've got to have something to defend myself with
3: if I need to.
0: Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Kulas. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud, and our season one reporting team includes Alex Lollback, Sam Wicks and Monique Bowley. Our researcher is Tamar Kranswick. The supervising producers for this episode are Kyla Slavin and Justine Kelly. Our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. Sound design on this episode by Russell Stapleton, with thanks to Timothy Nicastri and Stephen Tilley. Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. Our theme song is Yeah Na by the Gooch Palms, Courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra Music by Russell Stapleton. like this episode of Days Like These, I've got a really strong recommendation for something else that you might be into. Patient Zero is a series that tells the stories of disease outbreaks, where they begin, why they happen and how we found ourselves in the middle of a really big one. But these aren't your run of the mill medical documentaries. In Patient Zero, our clever friends from ABC Science tell these stories like they're true crime thrillers. There's suspense, there's tension, there's a bunch of amazing reveals. Like here, where everyone's scrambling to figure out why hundreds of people suddenly became sick on the Caribbean island of Haiti. It was October 2010 when the first reports of a mysterious illness began to spread through Haiti, a Caribbean nation two hours by plane from Miami, Florida, in the United States.
3: My friend and I were in our car and uh, we heard a report on the radio that a hospital in San marc was being overrun by people who were all showing up with the same symptoms, and people were dying, and no one exactly knew what this was.
0: So literally, they had gone from, you know, a normal day to this kind of explosive number of cases, and it sounded very, very suspicious.
3: The immediate question I had was, well, how is this possible, like, where did this come from?
0: We had patients in the hallways, we had patients on the floors, we had patients in the courtyard.
3: Some of the rumors that I was hearing were kind of weird. They all seemed a little bit far-fetched. United Nations helicopters dropping a black powder in the river. You know, the thing was that even though those stories were sort of all over the place, they had a couple of elements in common that got my attention. You know, first of all, they all had to do with a river. And they all had to do with the United Nations.
0: The rest of that episode and the series, search for RN Presents Patient Zero in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.